Hello, hello, and welcome to the first full-length episode of the Higher Principles podcast, where we discover principles of spirituality, liberty, and health, where it is totally okay to be a conservative hippie, and where we indulge in the best of many worlds. I'm your host, Luke Walker, and go ahead and follow us or give us a like and a share on Facebook at The Higher Principles Podcast or on Twitter at Higher Printcast. And if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to watch the introductory episode. In it, we cover what we'll be discussing on this show, principles of spirituality from all sources, principles of liberty as found in the U.S. Constitution, and principles of health such as herbalism, exercise, and diet. And we discuss how all of these seemingly unrelated topics can come together to help one live a full life, to help one experience a fullness of joy. And with all that being said, we're going to go ahead and get started. So before we cover, before we dive into the Constitution in upcoming episodes, we first need to cover something that is troubling for many, especially my fellow millennials. And that is this idea that the Founding Fathers, the ones who crafted this document, were racists and were slave owners. So to start off, I'm going to say, as a white American, I have no idea what it is like to experience extreme prejudice. I obviously would not have experienced the residual effects that slavery has had in this country and any systemic racism that may be present. And my heart truly goes out to anyone who has suffered the residual effects of prejudice in the United States and everywhere. Unfortunately, if we take a look at history, there has never been a point in time in which humanity wasn't enslaving one another somewhere. Oftentimes, the slaves and the slave owners were a part of the same societies. The slaves were often the impoverished in a society who were taken advantage of or who just needed stability, like an indentured servant. But this wasn't always the case, obviously. The Celts were enslaved by the Anglos, the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians, and of course, Africans were enslaved by Europeans. So during the mid-15th century, think roughly 50 years prior to the voyage of Christopher Columbus to the New World, the Portuguese purchased African slaves from African tribes in the Kingdom of Congo, and these African tribes had been enslaving one another. 90% of African slaves were imported into the Caribbean and South America, but by the early 19th century, 25% of Africans or of descendants of African slaves were living in the United States. Um, it's important when we discuss these things to avoid historical presentism. And that means we shouldn't hold the people of the past 
to the same standards we have now because life was just different in past times. Obviously, we shouldn't hold the purveyors of uh, terrible acts guiltless. People need to be accountable, but we should try to view history with unbiased eyes to take into account the societal norms at that time and how they were. So this sort of brings us to our founding fathers in the late 18th century. How could they claim to hold liberty as sacred? And how can we call them champions of liberty if they themselves owned slaves? And we're going to take a look at specifically George Washington and Thomas Jefferson because they are some of the most frequently called out founding fathers who owned slaves. Uh, They both lived in Virginia, and Virginia was a southern state or a southern colony, depending on when you're talking about, whose economy depended on slavery, just like the rest of the South. And a lot of people, of course, have bad things to say about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who were very influential founding fathers. Um, But John Adams, who never owned slaves said, no charge of insincerity or hypocrisy can be fairly laid to their charge. Never from their lips was heard one syllable of attempt to justify the institution of slavery. And he was saying that about his fellow compatriots. So George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, despite being slave owners and living in a southern colony, were some of the most early advocates for the abolition of slavery. Most of the slaves they both owned were actually inherited. Washington inherited all his slaves at the age of 11, after his father died. And Jefferson, too, inherited slaves from his family members. Now, Jefferson would buy and sell slaves, but often to reunite African families. So neither Jefferson nor Washington outright owned uh, most of their slaves. They inherited the estates of their deceased family members, and they were the executors of those estates. So one might be wondering, why couldn't they just free their slaves if they were supporting the abolition of slavery? Well, because they didn't outright own their slaves, And because there were other members of the estates that they were the executors of, it would have been illegal for them to sell those slaves because those slaves weren't fully theirs. But Washington was able to free his slaves at his death by his will in 1799. So through his legal will, he was able to free his slaves. Unfortunately, when Jefferson died in 1826, the laws had become too strict for him to use the same means to free his slaves. Uh, While both of them actively worked to abolish slavery throughout their lives, they feared that immediate emancipation or the immediate freeing of the slaves would put uneducated slaves at risk. Many of them did not have the ability to protect and provide for themselves. And many abolitionists shared this same concern. They also feared that retaliation from slave-supporting whites in southern states 
would occur and that these slaves would be harmed, killed, or re-enslaved. As we know, the southern states or colonies, depending on which time you're talking about, were dependent upon slavery. Thomas Jefferson said, where the disease is most deeply seated, and he's talking about slavery there, there it will be slowest in eradication. In the northern states, it was merely superficial and easily corrected. In the southern, it is incorporated with the whole system and requires time, patience, and perseverance in the curative process. So as absolutely tragic as slavery was, compromising the entire economy of the colonies by enacting immediate emancipation, by freeing the slaves immediately, would have prevented America from gaining our independence and instituting a government in which all individuals had the greatest potential for prosperity. Um, this government was structured under the U.S. Constitution, and during the Constitutional Convention, when it was being drafted, slavery was hotly debated. So at the Constitutional Convention, you had delegates from each state, and the delegates from the northern states were huge advocates of abolition, but the southern, the southern states had some concerns. All agreed at that time that forming a union, that creating the United States was a more important issue than emancipation because forcing the southern states to abandon slavery would cause them to back out of that compact, to back out of the Constitutional Convention. And at that time, the colonies had been governed by the Articles of Confederation instead of the Constitution, and those Articles of Confederation were not structured very well. The United States was about to undergo an economic collapse and it is almost sure that Britain would have reinvaded. And civil collapse, civil strife was also very prominent at that time. So they needed to come together. Everyone at the convention agreed that the institution of slavery needed to end in the near future, in the next couple of decades. So the Constitution was actually designed to help facilitate this. In Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, there is the Three-Fifths Clause, which states, Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included with this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. So that three-fifths of all other persons is referring to black Americans. And what that essentially is doing is counting black Americans as three-fifths of a person. Now, this has been heavily criticized because obviously on the surface, that seems awful. They're not even considering them a whole person. But this actually has to do with voting power and it was the delegates from the northern states who forced the southern delegates to accept this. Because when a black American, when a, when a slave is counted as three-fifths of a person, 
that means that the owner of that slave has a lot less voting power because they were able to count their slaves' votes. And that three-fifths clause cut the voting power of slave owners and southern states in half. And if you cut their voting power in half, that means that the likelihood for pro-slavery legislation to pass is a lot less obviously. Now, another anti-slavery slash pro-abolition aspect of the Constitution can be found in Article 1, Section 9. It states that the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, but a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation not exceeding $10 for each person. So this is saying that United States Congress could start to pass anti-slavery legislation in 1808 through the voice of the people, and the people were becoming increasingly abolitionist, increasingly anti-slavery. And the reason they had to wait till 1808 was because this was part of that compromise between the northern delegates and the southern delegates. But in the meantime, uh, slave owners would be taxed for the importation of slaves. So many of the founding fathers were anti-slavery, despite what you may have heard. And this can be found in these foundational documents uh, regarding the formation of our union and in the letters of some of our founding fathers or in the testimonies about them. In fact, both the Jefferson and Washington's family slaves uh, took their last names in some instances and revered them. These families who had slave ancestors still have their last names. In future episodes, as we begin to explore the United States Constitution, uh, we're going to see how it truly enables all individuals to be the most prosperous and free that they can be. And of course, that's the goal for all of us. The Founding Fathers truly wanted us to create a better and better society over time. And the Constitution give a, gives us the structure and the breathing room so we can do that. I've studied the Constitution. It is so geniusly crafted. There is no inherent racism or any ism in this document. What it does, it is it restrains government in a way in which government has never been restrained. The Founding Fathers had studied so many different systems of government throughout history. A lot of monarchies, democracies, republics, and so many others. And what they did was they took the best from every system and they rejected any principle that could lead to tyranny, that could lead to the oppression of the people. So like I said, the Founding Fathers wanted us to have a better society over time. And the reason we experience so much turmoil today, whether social or economic or racial, is because government officials and bankers and crony capitalists found ways to circumvent the Constitution over time. And this is history. We can see this on paper, how this happened, and we're going to get into this in the future. 
And when I say crony capitalists, I don't mean free market entrepreneurs. I mean the owners of mega corporations who have worked with the government to give themselves the upper hand and to sort of, in recent times, infringe upon our privacy and other rights of ours. Now, to switch gears a little bit, but keeping in mind that idea of society getting better and better over time, Siddhartha Gautama, otherwise known as the Buddha, is recorded as saying, what you are is what you have been. What you'll be is what you do now. Staying in tune with our spiritual nature, regardless of religious belief, entails obeying our own moral codes. We covered that a little bit in the introductory episode. A good moral code is one that restrains us from violating others and violating ourselves. If we have a sound moral code and adhere to it throughout our lives, we obviously will have improved the lives of others and our own lives. But what if we want to be even better? Everybody yearns for a utopia, this idea of a perfect society that goes along with society improving over time to eventuate in perfection. But unfortunately, people seek to obtain this through force, violence, and some sort of government intervention instead of what I think are the best, best methods, tolerance, education, and service. These attempts to use force to sort of herald in a utopia have always failed. They have always led to starvation and bloodshed. There hasn't been one single society that succeeded at crafting a utopia through force. Think uh, Nazi Germany or communist Russia, and there are so many other examples, but those are some of the most prominent ones. The only sure way to craft a peaceful, prosperous society is first to become a peaceful and prosperous individual. And when I say prosperous on the individual level, I don't mean just materially. I don't mean having lots of money and having lots of stuff. I'm talking about prosperous mentally, emotionally, uh, health-wise. And of course, material prosperity is nice after you are prosperous in those other areas. So to achieve this sort of individual peace and prosperity, um, we not only need to adhere to our own moral codes, to be in tune with our own spirituality, but we need to go above and beyond this moral code and improve upon it over time. What I call this is living the higher law. When we voluntarily transcend the moral restraints we've chosen to adhere to, we are living a higher law. Living a higher law will never contradict our original moral code, our base moral code, but what it does is it refines it and renders it more perfect. So think about your life. As you've surrendered your own ego and have gone above and beyond over time, your life has usually been enhanced in some way. Um, and everyone's done this. Everybody's done this. We do this when we engage in charity, when we participate in service, 
when we give up addictions, when we exercise, or treat our enemies with kindness, anything that goes above and beyond what we believe to be right is living that higher law and is getting closer to the utmost individual peace and prosperity. So there are so many examples of this in spiritual and philosophical texts. In the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, we discover that the Nazarites choose to live a higher law than that of their fellow Israelites, and because of that, they're blessed. By abstaining from alcohol and engaging in other unique practices, the Nazarites received greater blessings. Socrates said, One should never do wrong in return, nor mistreat any man, no matter how one has been mistreated by him. This idea that even if somebody has done injustice to you, of you forgiving them and keeping your bearings, that's living the higher law. Because on the surface, it's not equitable. If somebody does an injustice to you, you know, they need to be, I guess, punished for that if we're talking about worldly fairness. But you can transcend that and experience personal refinement and inner peace from that. Um, another example, if you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as I am, uh, we have what we call the Word of Wisdom, and it instructs us to have a healthy diet and also to avoid harmful, mind-altering substances. But all we're mandated to do in our church is to keep away from these harmful substances. Keeping your diet in check and eating healthily is living a higher law in that case because although it is suggested, it's not mandatory. You're going above that mandatory moral restraint. And even more specifically, the word of wisdom instructs us to eat meat sparingly only in times of winter or famine. And that was because at that time, when it was written, crops would die in the winter and there was no constant uh, circulation of produce in grocery stores and things like that. We have that today, though, so that's even more reason for us to abstain from meat at all times. It's not mandated, but... It says that the Lord delights when we abstain from meat. So it's living a higher law and receiving the greater blessings because of that and becoming a more refined, perfect version of you because of that. So many religions and philosophies encourage us to increasingly live laws higher than what society lives or deems as fair and also to go above and beyond our own moral codes. And as we do this as individuals and educate others through example and discussion, our societies will improve, and these utopias that we're chasing will emerge. But we have to remember, this can't be done by force. If a society isn't living a higher law in their hearts, then there's no way that they can legislate themselves into that to use threat of force. So this is something that needs to happen on an individual level 
in which we need to educate one another and be the example. And the founding fathers wanted this. They wanted society to get better so Africans were no longer enslaved. And so the principles of freedom found in the Constitution um, could be brought to everybody's life. So we're going to wrap it up for today. Um, I really enjoyed discussing principles of liberty and spirituality with you and going over some of the history and context uh, behind the framers of the Constitution and the Constitution itself. And I am so eager to cover principles of herbalism and diet and exercise with you in future episodes. If you have any questions or comments or critiques, feel free to hit us up at higherprinciples at pm.me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, and I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>